Hey, this is John Stevens, pastor of Chapelwood, and this is our weekly sermon podcast. I hope it will impact your heart and your life and help you grow closer to God. Check us out online at chapelwood.org. Thanks for tuning in. Our scripture today is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. Now this I affirm and assist on in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles live in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of their ignorance and hardness of heart. They have lost all sensitivity and have abandoned themselves to licentiousness, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That is not the way you learned Christ. For surely you have learned about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. You were taught to put away your former life, way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to clothe yourselves with the new self, creating, created according to the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. So then putting away flash, falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another, but be angry, be angry do, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not make room for the devil. These must give up stealing, rather than let labor and work honestly with their own hands, so as to have something to share with the needy. Let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up. As there is need, so that your words may give grace to the, those who hear. And do not give grief um, the, to the Holy Spirit of God, which, with which you were marked with a steel for the day of redemption. Put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander, together with all, all malice and being kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgetting, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. <laughs> so just as a, a moment of personal privilege, today is September 11th, which is also uh, my and Stephanie's 29th wedding anniversary. Uh, we were married in 1993. I don't know if she's here or not at this service. She may be at the next service. But anyway, she is a saint to put up with me for that long. I can just guarantee you. You know, as we talk about this book of Ephesians, I, I really am so overwhelmed and engaged in this book because Paul is writing to the church. Gen I mean, specifically, he's writing to the church specifically. So there's some things that are going on. But it's meant to be a broad book that all of the churches listen to and, and participate in and to be taught by, including us. And when you go through the book of Ephesians, as we've talked about this series called One, you know, he starts out in chapter one and he says that it originally set forth in Christ this plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him in heaven and in earth. So this unity exists. Unity is a reality in God. It's called oneness. And, and in, for 2,000 years of Christian spirituality, we've used this word called oneness, that you participate into the unity of God. So when we say we build unity or create unity or have to craft unity or work for unity, that's not the way it works scripturally. Unity is, it exists, and you can either live into it and participate in it or choose not to. 
The same is true of peace in chapter 2. The scripture, Paul says, for he, Christ himself, is our peace. He is not someone who creates peace or builds peace or introduces peace. He is our peace who has made us both one. Talking about the Jews and the Gentiles here, which is basically Jewish Christians and then all the rest of the world, people who are outside the knowledge of God. And he has broken down in his flesh every dividing wall of hostility. So unity is a reality. Peace is a reality. The peace of Christ is a reality. We can either live into it and participate in it or choose not to. This is a very important concept. And then, of course, in chapter 4, which is where we are today, he begins at the beginning and he says, look, I'm a prisoner of the Lord and I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. The word walk, peripateo, in the Greek means the way you live your life, not two-stepping up to the stage. It's the way you live your life. That's your walk. In a manner worthy, the word in the Greek is axios, and it means a fulcrum, kind of like it sits on a seesaw, right, on a fulcrum. And so we live in a manner worthy, and to worthy is to make those right decisions on the fulcrum, on the axis, to be able to live and participate in the oneness and the peace, to break down the dividing walls that are among us. And he says, there is one body, one spirit, just as we were called to one hope, one Lord, one Father to us all, one baptism, one God, who's over all and in all and through all and in all, and this is the grace by which we are given. This is the buildup. Paul's really talking about this systematic theology. It's really big concepts. But then he gets into the practicality of it. That's what I love as he goes into four, five, and six. He starts saying, all right, what does it look like? If you live into the oneness, if you live into the peace, if you become the kind of church that I'm asking you to be, calling you to be, what does it look like? And we have to battle some forces that are at work competing with our souls and our mentalities and our minds and our ways of living and acting. Now, it's been around since the beginning of humanity, but in the 1530s, there was a guy in Italy named Niccolo Machiavelli, and he wrote a book called The Prince, Il Principe. And in it, he recognized all of the powers that are at work in the world that have been around since the beginning of time in order to lead, in order to relate, in order to function in society. If you wanted to be a really good king or a leader or a ruler or an emperor, you got to read Machiavelli and you got to read Sun Tzu, The Art of War, The Prince and The Art of War. There's your two playbooks according to the world. And they've been codified down, and whether we know it or not, the way that we live, the way that we act, the way that we respond, the way that we lead and have community together is very much founded on a lot of these principles. The Christian life, though, a life of following Jesus, we do not take our cues from the world, but we find a more transcendent model for embodying Christ in the world, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Machiavelli wrote, there is nothing more necessary than to appear to have the qualities of religion and goodness, inasmuch as men judge you generally by the eye more than the hand, because everyone gets to see you, but very few come into close contact with you. What he's saying there is that you could put on this mask and pretend as if you're kind and you're noble and generous, but really you can behave badly. But he goes on to say, if you are a ruler, if you are a leader, if you are in community, one who is establishing or ruling a kingdom or a republic, 
If you ever are criticized by your deeds or if you ever need to use the deeds like deception or treachery or crime or violence, you should be excused when you have the intention or the result that is beneficial to you. We call this the ends justify the means. And it is a pervasive power in our culture and has been since humanity is round. Paul addressed this head on. This tendency uh, was in the early church to live this way, to operate this way, and so it didn't begin or end with Machiavelli. I would argue that in today's church, we not only adopt the philosophy of the end justifies the means, but many modern Christians actually bless it. In our society, in our culture, we bless it. But Paul makes it clear that if you are a follower of Jesus, you're not to live your lives in the same manner as those who do not know Christ. Or not to live your life in, this, in the manner of which those people who claim to know Christ, but live contrary to the teachings and the ways of Christ. The way a Christian walks in the world, the way you live, peripateo, the way you walk in a manner worthy has to be distinguishable from the ways that people in the world walk, the way they function, the way they interact, the way they talk about one another, the way they talk to each other. And my friends, what I have noticed and seen is that in Christian churches, especially in America, but all over the world, we have allowed a lot of outside forces, culture, ways of talking, ways of interacting, philosophies to infiltrate into the church and it becomes our language and we have redeemed it. We've redeemed it and saved it or sanctified it or co-opted and said, this is of God, when it's not. For a Christian, the ends don't justify any means. That's not Jesus, it's not Paul. The means matter. And the means are just as important, if not more important than the ends. Because you see, the gospel in and of itself is not about ultimately you winning in the world. It's ultimately about you laying your life down as a follower of Jesus to take up your cross and to be willing to follow in humility and in sacrifice and love, in love so that the world might know Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? And so Paul says, I want to affirm you and insist in the Lord. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles walk. And in Ephesians, the word for Gentiles in the Greek is ethne. It means all ethnicities. It means there are, he talks about the Jews and the Gentiles. When he says the Jews, he means also the Jewish Christians. He's talking about Christians. And because that in the early church, they were mostly coming out of Judaism. The Jews and the Gentiles, those who are in and those who are out. To acknowledge how we have been formed by the ways of the world is a very important step as it means to be, as to live as a Christian in the world. We have to recognize the forces and the factors and the powers that are influencing us and causing us to live and do and say things that are not out of this book, but out of a different type of book, the world's book. So Paul says, don't walk this way. Listen to this version of the translation of the same 17 through 24 from the message. Now, Eugene Peterson translated from the Greek into the English, but he used some contemporary language that's a little bit more vibrant and helpful sometimes for me as I'm studying it during the week. Listen to what he says. And so I insist, and God backs me up on this, that there be no going along with the crowd. 
the empty-headed, mindless crowd. They've refused for so long to deal with God that they've lost touch not only with God, but with reality itself. They can't think straight anymore. Feeling no pain, they let themselves go into obsessions, addicted to every sort of perversion. But that's no life for you. You learned Jesus Christ. And my assumption is that you have paid careful attention to him, been well instructed in the truth precisely as we have it in Jesus. Then we do not have the excuse of ignorance. Everything, and I mean everything, connected with that old way of life has to go. It's rotten through and through to the core. Get rid of it. And then take on an entirely new way of life, a God-fashioned self, a life renewed from the inside and working itself into your conduct as God accurately reproduces his character in you. And yet, Christians use hateful speech. Christians advocate political violence. Christians use rhetoric that tears down others who may disagree with them in politics or certain things in Scripture that they interpret differently. And we treat each other not in the manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, but we co-opt and we use the language of the world, resorting to the world's ways in order to accomplish what we deem is God's purpose. We've got to win. We've got to vote for the right person because we've got to win because that's the right outcome even if these people are not good people. He's not going to have it. Paul, not John Stevens, Paul's not going to have it, not with the Ephesians and not with the church. He says the spiritual life is a continual process of taking off and putting on an ongoing journey of continual conversion that leads to transformation. He uses the imagery of clothing yourself with new clothes. Put off the old self, put on the new self. Clothe yourselves with the new self. I'm dressed for church. But if I were to go home and work in the yard, which I'm not going to do because when I grew up, the old preacher said, preachers can't work in the yard on Sunday. So I told Stephanie years ago, when I was growing up, the old timers that were retiring when I started in the late 80s, early 90s, you couldn't cut the grass on Sunday. And I thought, that's great. I love that. But when they cut the grass on Saturday, they put on their white shirt with a tie and a coat and cut the grass. Serious. In the deep south, if you saw a preacher outside, they had on a coat and a tie. Paul's advocating that we are to put off, take off the old self the old way, the ways of the ethne, the ways of the Gentiles, the ways of the world, and put on new self. It's an ongoing journey of continuing conversion. It doesn't happen in a day. It doesn't happen in a week. It takes a lifetime. But you have to be intentional. You can't just, you can't neglect it. You can't just say, oh yeah, whatever. You have to be intentional about it. So that every day, We are making progress in the journey of sanctification. Paul is not only advocating for getting rid of harmful behaviors, but he said, I want you to fill the void with something. He's not just saying take things off. No, I want you to put new things on. This makes sense. This is the way of Jesus who says, you've heard it say, but I say to you. 
So there are things that we have to remove and take off, but we have to fill that void with something new. Now, here's what's really fascinating about this scripture. If you really dig deep, it is worth noting that when he speaks of the things that we are to take off, they are organized around the self as an individual. He says you're to put off falsehood, you're to not steal, you're to put off unwholesome talk. But when he says about, when he speaks about the things that we are to put on, he speaks of them in a communal sense. You are to speak truthfully to one another. You are to speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Do you see? It goes from the individual, which is the false self, the selfish self. You take that off and you put something on, but the good you put on isn't just for you. It's for the benefit of the community, of the oneness, of the peace, of breaking down the dividing walls for the body of Christ to be unified. And so he goes through this list of these things to take off and put on. Put off falsehood. Put on speaking truthfully to your neighbor. For you all, we are all members of one body. This is why we titled the sermon One Kinship. I didn't leave out a G. It wasn't a typo. It is that we are kin. We are brothers and sisters in the family of God. No matter where those brothers and sisters are in the world, whether in Africa or Europe or in Australia or South America or North America, it doesn't matter where they are, we are one body. So we are speak truthfully to our neighbors, to the members of one body. We are a kinship with one another. When we speak deceitfully, when we speak with falsehood or with pretense, we damage not only ourselves, but we damage relationships. I don't need to preach about this for very long. You live it. When someone says something to you, a, a falsehood or, or, or a, a damaging word or, or speaks out, there's so much stuff. Now, we don't even know what is false and what's true anymore. It's really crazy because now every time something is put out there, we assume it's a falsehood. Do you see how that undermines community? If everything you think you hear is a lie or is tarnished or is corrupted or is a falsehood, it makes you uncertain about all the relationships that you have. So he says we got to speak truthfully. And I'll just say, falsehood isn't just lying. It's hiding or preventing or misconstruing or twisting facts. No, he says, speak truthfully. Speak truthfully to your neighbor. Remember, we are all members of one body. I found in, in difficult situations or in, in, in divisions, sometimes people will come with a, with an, a spirit of anger or, or defensiveness or whatever. And, and, and in that moment, I have learned through the years, it used to be that I wanted to be right. <laughs> Anybody ever like to be right? If you don't raise your hand, you are in church and God's going to get you. Everybody likes, everybody likes to be right, right? We like to be right. But I've learned through the years, and I'm growing in this as I'm putting, taking off the old self and putting on the new clothes that he wants me to put on, is that my first goal here is to try to repair this relationship. What is it that causes this person to come to me in anger? I need to deal with that first, not the facts, not the data, not the details, not all of that. No, I got to figure out what, why can we not have a conversation that brings us together and recognizes that we are members of one body. That's first. The second thing he says is to deal with anger. Now, this is one of two 
put off statements in the series that's not paired explicitly with a put on alternative. In fact, it falls out of the getting dressed analogy altogether. The New International Version and the New RSV, NRSV, assume that ang- you're going to get angry. angry is a- anger is a part of life. It says, be angry, but do not sin in the NRSV. In, in the message, it says, you do well to be angry. But it says, do not allow that anger to lead you to sin. Do not allow the anger to grow in you. So there's not a prohibition to anger. Jesus even got angry. When he saw them turning the temple into a marketplace, he was angry. He went, he turned the tables over. He drove the merchants out of the temple. Do you remember that? That's righteous anger. Whenever, I, you know, whenever you hear of injustice in the world, it should cause a little bit of righteous anger. But what we're talking about as it relates to relationships is don't let anger fester in you. You do well to be angry, but don't let it fuel you for revenge, the message says. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. You're supposed to let the anger go before you go to bed. Because when you allow it to incubate in you, it comes out sideways. It comes out breaking relationships. Now, I learned a long time ago when I came here in 2014 to not talk about college football on Sunday mornings. And I'm not going to talk about college football. I am going to say that I I just guessed that maybe a lot of people went to bed angry last night. (laughs) Amen? (laughs) So look, the point I'm making, and I'm going to stop right there, or you may go angry tonight too, and I don't want to do that. I don't want to be a cause for you to stumble. But what I am saying is that when anger is allowed to sit in us in relationship, it seethes, it builds, it catches a foothold. Finally says, do not give the devil a foothold. And the implication is when we harbor anger, when we hang on to anger, we find ourselves living counter to God's design for us and in the world and in relationships with other people. Put off stealing instead, of, instead put on work so that you will have something to share with one another. Now, our first thought goes, well, he's talking about people who are thieves and stealing as a moral wrong. Yes, he's talking about that, but he's talking about something much bigger than that. He's not so much concerned about the stealing as a moral problem, but rather lifts it up as a communal problem. Because the person who steals is taking from someone else's labor. And when you take from someone else's labor, you are diminishing the other person. So you don't do that because you're objectifying, diminishing the person's work and what they have to contribute to the good of the whole. So you are to put on work so that you can be laborious and productive so that now you have something to bring and share with the community. It's all about what you have to share with other people. That's the way he's talking about it. Put off on wholesome talk. Put on speech that builds up others. The unwholesome talk that we are to set aside is not necessarily foul language. This is not about cussing, although you shouldn't do that either. What we're called to, again, Paul says, is after a greater standard of relating to one another, a greater understanding of community. That we are not to engage in language that is destructive or harmful, that tears other people down. The message translation says, don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything that you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to people who hear them. 
So we put on speech that builds up community. Paul says this in all of his letters. He says, um, bear one another's burdens. Think of others as more highly than you think of yourself. Jesus talked about this over and over, all through the New Testament. This is a central, important principle. It builds kinship. That's what Paul's thinking about here. He's thinking about as he writes the letters to the churches, it's not a list of morality. It's how do I help the community live as a community together, loving one another, even in the midst of their differences. That's what it's about. That's the fundamental foundation of the message of the epistles of Paul, which is why in 1 Corinthians 13, it all builds up with all the disagreements to the chapter where it says, and these three abide, they, you know, faith, hope, and love. These three are left but love is the greatest. It's not the wedding passage. It's a passage written for a church that's deeply divided. And his axios, the fulcrum in that, on 1 Corinthians 13, it's about love. Love one another. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Another one that doesn't have a put-on statement, but what this simply means, in the New Living, New Living Translation, translates it this way, do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way that you live. The way that we live, when we don't live into this teaching of Paul as the church in the world, not only does it affect our witness, it grieves the heart of God. When I look and see how churches and church members are acting these days, speaking and behaving and treating one another, I mean, it grieves me, but I come back to this passage and I wonder, how does it grieve the heart of God every day to see his children treat one another like this and his children to treat people who are not within the church but are still God's children like this? And then finally, he says, put off bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, and all forms of malice. Put on kindness and compassion and forgiveness in the final passage, he returns to the clothing metaphor. He wants us to work through putting these certain things that diminish and hinder uh, community life off. They undercut life together. Each of the six things he mentions, bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, and malice, have their own ways of undercutting communal life. It does not take a lot of imagination as to how detrimental it can be. But on the other hand, kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. Kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. Kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. Say it. Kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. If we could repeat that as a mantra in our life every single day, in every relationship, in every interaction, can you imagine? Because we still wouldn't do it all the time, but at least we would recognize that we need to be about this, kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. Paul will later include these in his fruits of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. It's not surprising that Paul wants us to put these things on because they're crucial traits for those who wish to be in the kingdom. When we talk about the kingdom of God, it's important to remember that we are in a kingdom together. We are brothers and sisters connected to one body where Christ is the head. When we hurt each other, when we harm one another, other Christians, we are harming the body of Christ. 
I think this is an important message for us. It's, it's, it's funny to me, not funny, it's peculiar, that Paul was focused so much on this 2,000 years ago. And yet it still is so deeply applicable now because we just can't seem to figure it out. And it's not because it's not accessible, not possible. It's just we haven't really been all that fired up to try it. I'd like for us to try it. And I think the churches that really try to live this way, I think the churches that really take this seriously are going to be the churches that recognize and learn and know that the means matter. The means are the witness to the world. We're never going to resolve all the disagreements. We're never going to finally get to all the ends that we all want, that we think are pure and perfect and right. And so we're always going to live in this post-Genesis 3 world. But we have to ask ourselves, if that's the case, how do we disagree? How is it that we live our lives in the midst of a broken world? That is the light that shines in the darkness. That is what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would fill us with the power of your Holy Spirit, that our words, our actions, our lives, and how we treat one another would not be something that grieves you, grieves the Holy Spirit. I pray that as hard as it is to take off the old self and put on the new self, that we would be conscious about it, that we would attempt it to be about the journey of spiritual formation. Lord, give us the power and the strength to make the decisions that we know we need to make, even if it means giving up certain loyalties in life, to make room in the center of our life for you, nothing but you. Lord, it will change our lives. It will change the ways we interact. It will change the way we interact and experience the broken world. Our whole life will be different. I pray that you'd give us that and lead us into it in the name of Christ.